Our reading for our study and meditation uh, is at the end of Romans, Romans chapter 16, and the last three verses of the letter. So Romans 16, verse 25. And before we read, let's just bow our heads briefly in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, once again, as we come to your word, we pray that you'd help us to to have eyes that are open to see it, ears that are open to hear it, hearts that are open uh, to receive it and understand it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul finishes his letter with these words. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we finally come to the last verses of the book of Romans. We've been, I don't know how long we've been looking at Romans, for over a year probably. The last, there's the last section. And here we have a, a closing a doxology. Um, and some people describe it as a benediction. Um, but it isn't actually a benediction, it's a doxology. Uh, what's the difference? Um, well, a benediction is the giving of a divine word from God to the people. And, uh, and so if, if you look back to chapter 15, for example, um, verse 13, here's a, here's a benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Or, if you look at uh, 1533, Uh, Paul says, may the God of peace be with you all. So it's a word, a benediction is a word from God to the people. So a good word, a benediction. Uh, I don't do Latin, but something like that. (laughs) Um, But a a doxology goes in the opposite direction. And, uh, And so here Paul is offering something to God from him and from us. As we read together. Uh, an offering of praise and worship uh, now to him who is able to strengthen you. Verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is a, a doxology of praise and worship. And so what's the doxology about? Well, it's about the gospel, uh, which he now revels in and delights in uh, and leads him, it's a, it's a gospel that he's been explaining in all its majesty and glory over the chapters that have gone before it. And in some ways he, he's finishing here where he started uh, in, in the book of Romans. Uh, if you, you might want to, to turn with me back to chapter 1. And there... Paul introduces the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. And he says, so chapter 1, 
uh, verse 1. This is a gospel uh, which he has been set apart for. Uh, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So he's talking about the gospel here. And then he says in verse 2, this is a gospel that has come through the prophets. In other words, all these people have gone before that have written the Old Testament. He says, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's the, the Old Testament. And then he speaks about the power of God and the uh, ability of God in the resurrection. So verse 4 of chapter 1. It was, he was declared, Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he speaks about the obedience of faith in verse 5. Through whom we have received the grace, uh, grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then he says that in verse 11, jump along to verse 11, he talks about the strengthening that comes through that gospel in verse 11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He's thinking about his gift of ministry and his gift of preaching. And he wants to do that so that he may strengthen uh, the church. And he speaks in verse 17 of this great act of disclosure and manifestation of the gospel of truth. So, verse 17, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And God has come to reveal his righteousness in the gospel. So that's how Paul starts. And so when we come to the end... He is saying all the same things right at the end. To him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages and now has been disclosed. And through the prophetic writings, there's a prophets again. Through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And, and so having, it's interesting, so he starts in that way, a marvelous way in chapter 1, and then he spends the whole letter expounding the detail of that gospel which he's introduced to the church, Started talking about it, expounding the benefits of the gospel to people. And he goes through what, uh, what it is that Christ has come to do. In chapter 3, and he speaks about what saving faith is. In chapter 4, and then chapter 5, he talks about the blessing of standing in Christ and the, how Christ is the head of a new humanity in contrast to Adam. And then in chapter 6 he begins to speak about the the new life that you have in Christ. And it's represented in your baptism. When you're baptized you're like a new person because you're identified with the Jesus who died on the cross. And you too have died and now you live in a new life together. And then chapter 7 speaks about all the struggles that you face as a Christian. You know, some things I, some things I, I, I do that I don't, don't want to do, says Paul, and the other way around, you know. 
He's saying it's such a struggle. There's a battle within the flesh going on. Because I want to serve Christ and I know what is right. But sometimes I, I do other things and I sin and fall into it. Who's going to help me in this body of sin, he says. Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ. And in chapter 8 he speaks about the glories of the blessings of assurance and saving grace and the certainty of the love of God and how there's going to be that great revelation of the sons of God before the whole of creation that groans in waiting in expectation to see what it is that God is doing in the midst of all of us. The whole of creation is, is waiting and is ready and then one day his people are going to be revealed. You know, I sometimes think about this, you know, where do you see the church of Jesus Christ? Where, where does, the, does the world recognize the church of Jesus Christ? No, it doesn't. It doesn't care. And uh, we can recognize each other when we come into this, uh, this room. And we can say to ourselves that we are saved and we're redeemed. And we know the benefits of salvation and justification. But the world doesn't know anything about that. It just looks at us and sees people. Ordinary people, just like anybody else. Maybe get a, a little bit of a sign we're talking this morning about the glow that comes upon a Christian who seeks Jesus Christ. And maybe they can see something of that, but they just don't know what it is. But then one day, there's going to be that public revealing of the sons of God. And God gives his public affirmation. These are my people. My glorious people that I've saved. And so chapter 8 speaks about that great love of God. For his people. In chapter 9, Paul begins to wrestle with the, the whole question of his kinsmen, his fellow Jews, who, who seem not to have received the gospel in the same way that the Gentiles are receiving it. And he tries to explain how that's going to work out in that picture of the tree, uh, the olive tree into which branches are grafted and some are broken off. Some of the, the Jewish people are broken off of it because they've never really believed. But some people are grafted in, new people are grafted in all the time as they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he finishes chapter 11 with this glorious doxology, praise and worship. And then he says, he's not finished there, he says, what are the implications of all of this in the Christian life? And he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy... I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he begins to work out the implications of living the Christian life in the light of this glorious gospel. From chapter 12 through to chapter 15. And now we, now we come to chapter 16. And he turns once again to this God who has saved them. What a wonderful finish to this wonderful book and uh, he wants us to reflect on the sheer scale and majesty of this gospel that he has been explaining in such detail so what is it about this gospel that stimulates so much praise and worship in the, the, the mind of Paul and the, thought, the heart of Paul well let me just draw out four things that are I think we can focus on here Probably plenty more things we can think of. But let's, four things. First of all, the gospel is personal. The gospel is personal. Secondly, the gospel is historical. Thirdly, the gospel is a gospel of God. Not of human beings or anyone else, but God. God's given it. 
And the third thing is, this is the gospel that brings about the praise of God, which is the ultimate goal of everything. That we gather for praise of God. So first of all, this is a gospel that's personal. And we see this in the way that he describes in the first in verse 25. He speaks of my gospel. Not just the gospel, but my gospel. And Paul uses that term extremely rarely. Three times he uses it in the New Testament. Most of the time he just uses the gospel. It's only mentioned in two other places. Once in his letter to Timothy, the second letter, he speaks to Timothy of my gospel. And the other time is earlier in the book of Romans in chapter 2, and he, he speaks of my gospel. But it seems to be that in this letter, Paul is very keen to get across to his readers that this is very personal for him. It is his gospel. Now let's not misunderstand here. He is not saying that the gospel he preached around the great cities of the Roman world was somehow different from the gospel that Peter preached, or John preached, or James preached, or Matthew preached, or Luke preached. It's the same gospel. It's the same for all of them. It's not as though Paul is saying he put a unique spin on the gospel or came at it from a unique angle. It is the same gospel. But it is personal for him. He possesses the gospel. And it's not simply that he possesses the gospel. But rather, he has been possessed by it. That he is gripped by it. And so when he says it's my gospel, it's because I am gripped by this gospel. I am consumed with this gospel. And friends, you can't, you can't read about the Apostle Paul. Read about his, you know, his story. Without getting that sense that something profoundly significant happened. That day on the road to Damascus, in Acts chapter 9, when Paul was setting about to persecute the church, to go to Damascus and round up all the Christians who were meeting there and and drag them out and throw them into prison, issuing murderous threats. And he goes with this bunch of henchmen to round them all up. And on that road, who should appear but Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus Christ. He came face to face with the Messiah whom he had sought so hard to deny. Up to, not that he d- denied the, the idea of a Messiah. He just denied that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And now, after that event, that profoundly change, life-changing event, he is totally gripped by the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his death and resurrection. He goes around the world preaching about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So so he moves 180 degrees completely from being an enemy of the gospel. Of seeking to close down churches by violence. To now being an advocate of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And preaching him to the nations. He's gripped by the idea 
That in Jesus Christ the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And his whole ministry is shaped by it. And so for Paul we have this deeply personal gospel that changed his life. And he wanted others to be gripped by it as well. He wanted the gospel to be their gospel, not just his gospel. To be their gospel. And if he were here today, he would, he would look at you and say, I want this to be your gospel. My gospel, I want it to be your gospel as well. A gospel that declares that you can be right with God. That you can have your sins condemned in Jesus Christ. Not in you. In Jesus Christ instead. That he can remove your sins from you. And all that would blemish you in the presence of a holy God. He can remove all of that. And you can find in Jesus Christ forgiveness for your sins. And acceptance with God. That God would receive you into his presence through Jesus. This is the glory of the gospel. He wants people to know. He wants you to have that gospel. And through that gospel then you can stand and face uh, all the trials, all the onslaughts of the, the wiles of Satan against you. That Satan that we thought of last week who is going to be crushed under the, under the, the feet of the church of Jesus Christ. And friends, I just want to say to you this evening, uh, is that gospel personal to you today? Has it gripped your soul Has Jesus Christ and fellowship with him become the longing of your soul? The desire of your soul? And it spills out of you into wanting to share Jesus Christ with other people. That's the kind of thing that's happened to Paul. My gospel. It's easy, isn't it, to pay lip service to the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Christian life? And sometimes what we mean is that we, and what we mean by that is we can say lip services, we can say that we can say all the right things, but actually Christianity makes no real difference to our lives. Jesus makes no difference. But true, truly having that gospel, for it being, for it to be my gospel, it leads to a heartfelt desire for worship, to worship God. Friends, there are too many people who go to churches who don't even know what the gospel is. Let alone to be able to say, this is my gospel. So the gospel is deeply personal. Secondly, uh, it's a gospel that's historical. Um, it's historical. And you can, to see this, you need to understand and see how Paul uses the words mystery um, at the end of verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Now when we think about mystery, we often think of an unsolved puzzle. But it's not really what Paul is speaking about here. It's not an unsolved puzzle here. Um, He's talking about something that has now been revealed. And it was a mystery And it's now revealed. And he says three things about it here. Firstly, it was a 
It was kept secret for long ages. And then secondly, he says, now it's been disclosed so that everybody can see it clearly. And thirdly, he says, that through the prophetic writings, that gospel is being made known to the nations. So here you see a definite progression of thought um, in Paul's writing here. The mystery was kept secret, now it's revealed, and now it's preached to the nations through the scriptures. Now what's the mystery that he's talking about? And the clue here is, of course, that, that it goes alongside my gospel. And the mystery here is the good news of Jesus Christ uh, and the, in his death and resurrection for salvation. Now, of course, that mystery for us is clear now because we, from, a, from this historical vantage point, we can look back and we can see it, that Jesus has come and has been observed and recorded in the pages of Scripture for us. And we have the Gospels written down for us. But before Jesus Christ came, he was, in a sense, hidden. Of course, he was anticipated. So you have all the promises in the Old Testament. You have the signs, the symbols, the practices that all kind of pointed in different ways to the coming Messiah that's, that's uh, he's coming in the future. But he himself couldn't yet be seen. So in a sense, he's, there's a mystery in the Old Testament. But now, having come... Paul and others were able to take those Old Testament prophetic writings and use them to go into the world and begin to preach Jesus Christ. And tell people and show people from eyewitness testimony and from the scriptures that this Jesus is the Christ. That's that's what he says in the book of Acts. You may remember the story of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 17. Paul goes to to Thessalonica. He's only there for three Sabbath days until he gets booted out by the crowds. They force him out. So he's got three opportunities to preach. And uh, what does he do in those opportunities? Well, he takes every opportunity. He doesn't waste his time. And Luke, in telling us what Paul did, he says this, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. So here's Paul taking the Old Testament and reasoning from the Scriptures. And then it goes on saying, Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, or the Messiah, to suffer And to rise from the dead and saying, and then here's the clincher, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So this this figure that's in the Old Testament is Jesus who came in history as planned. So you see the historic progression of the gospel from the long ages past to the present day. This mystery, this gospel, has been at work. Right way back into the garden, from the Garden of Eden. and continues to work all the way until Jesus comes back again. God has had a purpose in salvation 
It's not just for one people, Israel, ethnic Israel. Nor is it just for one time, in the time of Jesus. But it's been operative at all times and in different ways for all peoples. Friends, do you get the sense of the scale of the majesty of the gospel work that God is doing throughout history and across the world? There's only ever been one show in town. There's only one saviour, there's only one way of salvation. Every other show in the world, every other religion, every other philosophy of life or history, every other so-called gospel, is, if it is not the, Paul's gospel, is not the gospel. It's not a gospel at all. It is a counterfeit and a fraud. This is the only gospel there is. And it's the only one that can, has been operative, the only one that can save anyone. So it's a personal gospel. It's a historical gospel. Thirdly, it's a gospel that's of God. The reason that this gospel is so powerfully personal and so deeply embedded in history is that it is the gospel of the one true God. There's no other God. And we see all that we have seen so far of the progress of the mystery of the gospel. This is all according to the command of the eternal God. And Paul, there's a sense in which Paul is really rubbing it in here. See, God is not some... Let me use a Scottish word here. God is not a, a wee, tiny deity. <laughs> you know, a parochial deity, a deity for a small group of people. He is the one true God of the whole universe. He is the eternal God, the great I am, the God of redemption. The God who was and is and is to come. Whose own being and existence is the basis for anything else's being and existence. Your existence, your being depends moment by moment on this God. You would not exist if it were not for this God sustaining you moment by moment by his powerful word. There is only one God. And you exist because of it. In him you live and move and have your being. And this great God, this eternal God, has issued a command. Which is a command to bring about the spread of the gospel to the nations. As you listen to Paul speaking about this. Don't you get the feeling that there is a sense of certainty in Paul about all of this? An unshakable certainty? That somehow because this God has issued this command, that therefore it shall be so? It shall be so. It's often not how we see it sometimes. We're like sheep, aren't we? We're very sheep-like. We're, you know what sheep are like. <laughs> you ever been up into the mountains in Scotland or something and you see the sheep and they, they run like crazy. They're skittish. They're panicky. They worry. And we're like that too. We're skittish. We worry. Some, we, worry we panic. We think everything's going badly for the gospel. 
maybe we begin to complain and we begin to complain to each other and about each other. But as Habakkuk says and many other places in scripture, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. It will happen. There is absolute certainty about this. Does that mean that we can be complacent and fatalistic about the process of the gospel? No, of course not. You just have to look at Paul. How, did, how is he changed by the gospel? Well, he was far from complacent. He wasn't just sitting around thinking, well, God's going to do it. Ki sera, sera, whatever will be, whatever will be. It's in God's will. He can do it all. Some people speak that way, don't they? No, he says, I need to get out of there and preach. And he starts telling people about this Jesus. And he's, in another letter he writes about his life being poured out like a, a drink offering to the Lord as he gives himself to this gospel message. And friends, we should not be complacent about this either. Paul's given warnings earlier in this chapter about the dangers that face the church and how they're to be watchful and the actions that are to be taken by the church. He has given them instruction about living their lives together in relationship to themselves and to society and to the state. He's done all of that in the earlier chapters. And they're to spend themselves in living in union with Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's what Christian life is all about now. Spending yourself for the sake of that relationship. And that this God of ours is able to strengthen us in it. May God now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel according to this personal, historical divine gospel well finally this is a gospel that brings about the praise of God this is what Paul is doing here he's praising God at the finish of his letter He's noting how powerful the gospel is, how expansive the scope of it is for mankind and for all generations. How it's rooted in the will of God and the purpose of God. And how it results in the obedience of faith. In other words, people coming to faith as a result of the eternal decree of God. And all to our own joy and delight in God and in his wisdom. Paul cannot but ascribe to his God glory forevermore. That's immensely practical, isn't it? I often think this, the, the, you know, the measure by which we have really grasped the gospel is the extent and the vigor with which you and I are willing to ascribe glory to God. If we really grasped the gospel, it would change us completely you know in our society we, we ascribe glory to all the time to people you know to sports people who achieve great victories or to political figures who bring about significant social change for the common good we, we laud these people we exalt these people in our minds and in our voices We exalt people who, who spend their lives in self-giving for the sake of others. 
And all of these people, they're honored and praised. And we do so all the more. You know, you ever thought why we do this? We do so all the more if they embody our own aspirations. Often it's, you know, I wish I could do this. And there's somebody who does it. Isn't that an amazing thing? Why do, why do I like cycling, cycle racing and tour, the Tour de France every year, watching it? Because I once wished I was one of those guys. <laughs> I'm far too old for that sort of thing. But it, you know, our exaltation of people uh, embodies our own aspirations in some way or other. They kind of represent us, don't they? Well, what about God? This God who achieves mighty things through his son, Jesus Christ. Who has removed the penalty of sin. Who has freed us from the power of sin to bind us and hold us in our sin. Who has given us the, the spirit by which we may stand and endure against all accusation and opposition. And the hope and prospect we have in our own sharing in the glory that Jesus Christ gives us into eternity. You know, isn't that something? When you think about how God does all that, doesn't that fill your heart with aspiration for all those things that God is doing and giving into your life? Isn't that something that you want to glory in? This God who has done all these things. God has done all of this, don't we want to glorify him and actually stimulate our desire to be like him and to be like our Lord Jesus Christ and live for him? Isn't he worth truly worshipping? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious gospel. And we thank you for this glorious letter that we've been studying over the last many months. We pray You'd help us to have the glory of God at the center of our lives. And that to do that, we need to exalt Jesus Christ in our hearts. May he become everything to us. May he shape us and form us. Make him like himself. For our good, for your glory, and for the benefit of the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.